So we'll begin with the refuge in Bodhicitta, like we always do, and uh, remembering the visualization. Yes, we're not directing it into empty space. And yesterday when I was, I gave a talk to uh, the friends of Shravasti Abbey in Russia and uh, explained a little bit about how I explained a little bit about how uh, refuge and bodhicitta come together, yeah? Because when we take refuge, then of course we think about the qualities of the three jewels, especially the qualities of the Buddha. And we see that the Buddha gained all of those qualities uh, and you know, freed them himself from um, dukkha because of bodhicitta. That was his motivation. So when our object of refuge has that state of mind and that motivation, and that's who we want to become like, who our role model is, then it's very natural that we should generate bodhicitta too. Okay, so that's if you looking at it from the side of refuge. If you look at it from the side of bodhicitta, then, you know, if we want to become, uh, you know, we want to be able to benefit sentient beings and be able to uh, lead them out of samsara as well as, you know, lead them out of the lower realms while they're still in samsara, then we have to become the sangha, we have to become the Buddha, we have to actualize the dharma in our own mind in order to do that. And so a bodhicitta motivation then makes us turn to taking refuge so that we can become like our objects of refuge and to request them to teach us the path, the dharma, so that we will become like that. Okay, so uh, uh, like we had before of emptiness, inducing dependent arising and dependent arising inducing emptiness here we have refuge leading us to bodhicitta and bodhicitta leading us to refuge so i think it's um uh to me i find it very uh very inspiring very motivating um to see how the different meditations in the in the stages of the path affect each other and uh, are intertwined with each other. Yeah. Okay, so with that in mind, yeah, do the visualization.
helps us generate our motivation. For a minute, think about the disadvantages of having a mind that is like a wild elephant running here, running there, totally uncontrolled. What are the disadvantages of that? And then think what would it, it would be like to have a mind that was calm and compassionate, open and flexible. And what are the advantages of having a mind like that? seeing the disadvantages of a wild element, elephant mind and the benefits or advantages of a peaceful and compassionate mind. Make a strong determination to learn and then practice the methods to transform your mind from one to the other. and then to really benefit sentient beings. We want to go beyond simply having a calm and compassionate mind in this life to having a wise and compassionate mind of a Buddha and so generate the bodhicitta.
So we can see that the the method to uh, subdue the wild elephant mind and to create at least the fertile ground for developing a compassionate mind is ethical conduct. And what are the two main elements in ethical conduct? Mindfulness and introspective awareness. And so that's the chapter called Guarding Alertness, chapter 5 in Shantideva's text that we are now partway through. And uh, in the last session, he went through all these different uh, mental states and possible motivations and intentions uh, that we have during the day and counseled us that instead of acting them out, we should pause and recognize that they're there using introspective awareness, alertness, and then bringing our mind back to uh, a, uh, the virtuous uh, object that we want to establish our mind on when we're going through our daily life actions. Yeah, with and doing that with mindfulness. So it becomes very clear how ethical conduct is the foundation to, upon which we build everything else in our Dharma practice. Yeah, because if we don't subdue the wild elephant mind, then what in the world are we practicing? <laughs> yeah. What are we trying to do if we don't do that? And we have to start um, with the grossest manifestations of that wild elephant mind, which uh, are our verbal and physical actions. And then since they arise due to the mind, we have to look at the mind and how it gets uncontrolled. So... uh, you know, Shanti Deva really hit us. You know, when I, whenever I have distracted thoughts, the wishful to verbally belittle others' feelings of self-importance or self-satisfaction, when I have the intention to describe the faults of others, when I'm eager for praise or have the desire to blame others, whenever I have the wish to speak harshly and cause dispute, And he goes on and on and on. And if you really read this well, I don't know about you, but I've done all of these things that he says, you know, when you have the wish to do this, you know, or certain mental states, whenever I have impatience, laziness, cowardice, lack of integrity, the desire to talk nonsense, thoughts of partiality, you know, all these kinds of things. Again, I don't know about you, but these things proliferate in my mind. And uh, so he really hit the nail on the head. And when he encourages us uh, to be like a piece of wood, what he means is don't act on those. He's not saying suppress them. He's not saying become rigid, you know. And, and catatonic like a piece of wood. He's saying, 
don't act on those things. And then in verse 34, which was the last verse we talked about last week, he said, uh, he counseled that the courageous bodhisattvas hold their minds steady through the application of remedial forces. So that means they learn and then they practice the antidotes to the various afflictions. So that's very important in your Dharma study to learn, you know, you don't just learn the different meditations, but you have to think about what mental states do those particular meditations counteract. You know, and when you notice the wild, the different manifestations of the wild elephant mind to think, which meditations do I need to do that will help me calm that mind? Okay? So you have to match problem to solution. Yeah, that's very practical, isn't it? Yeah. So it requires some study, some thought, and then actually doing it. Mm-hmm. If we just sit and pray, may all my defilements go away, that's a very nice prayer. But that's not going to make them go away. Okay, we have to act. Okay, so we're on verse 55 now. Yeah. So being very resolute and faithful, steady, respectful, polite, with a sense of integrity, apprehensive and peaceful, I should strive to make others happy. Okay, so what kind of person do we want to become? I have to be resolute. I have to be clear-minded. I have to know what is virtue and what is non-virtue and have a strong mind that says, I want to practice virtue, and I want to abandon non-virtue. So there has to be mental clarity and resoluteness, a resolution, uh, you know, to do this. If we don't have that mental clarity, then we don't know what to practice and abandon. If we aren't resolute, then we're just wishy-washy. Okay. Now, how do you feel when you meet somebody who's wishy-washy? Yeah? And you, you even ask them a simple question. Yeah? Do you want to go for a walk, you know, in the park? And they go, well, maybe, but maybe not. I'm not really sure. I like going on walks, but... I don't, I've never been to this park, so I don't know if I'll like its trails. And I don't know if Saturday works for me well. Maybe Sunday might be better. Or I don't know, you know, we could go Saturday evening, but that's not so good. Maybe Saturday afternoon. And, you know, you just ask a simple question, and they're wishy-washy. There's no resoluteness. There's no spine in there. Okay? Now, imagine that kind of person trying to practice the Dharma. Yeah? How are they going to practice? It's like, well, yeah, I guess, 
You know, getting mad at people isn't so good, but it does have benefits here and there. And, you know, it kind of helps me to get something off my chest. But on the other hand, it does create problems in my relationships. So I don't know about it. You know, how are you going to practice if you have that kind of mind? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think bodhicitta is really good, but I'm not so sure. I want to take the bodhisattva vow, but uh, then there's so many things I can't do. But I actually don't want to do some of those things, but some of them I do want to do. So I don't know, should I take bodhisattva vow or not? Oh, God. You know? Okay, so you want to be resolute and clear-minded. And you want to be faithful, you know. You you want to, uh, you know, have faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. And you want to know what, pra- you know, path you're practicing and and have a clear idea why it's a good path. Yeah, like... You know, I'm thinking about becoming a nun, but I don't know whether to be a Catholic nun or a Buddhist nun. You know, I was brought up Catholic, and I that there's really something in my mind about that, but I'm more attracted to Buddhism. But I don't know, you know, do I believe in God? Or is Buddha the same as God? You know, I, I don't know which kind of nun to, to become. Yeah? Or I like bodhicitta, but I really like the Theravada robes better. And I like the, the discipline in the Theravada. I like the idea of going on Pindapot. You know, that really inspires me going out. Uh, so, you know, I want to be a Theravada nun. But, but then again, you know, if, if I ordain in, in a Mayana tradition, then uh, you know, I get to learn about bodhicitta, but bodhicitta, that's kind of difficult. So, uh, you know, it's much easier practicing Theravada. Maybe I better do that, but, you know, those Tibetan lamas impressed me. So I'm not quite sure, you know, and maybe I should go back to being a Catholic nun, you know, after all. Believe me, there are people like that. Yeah, there are people like that. Okay, we want to be resolute, faithful, steady. Okay, when people meet us every day, they want to have some idea of who we are that day. Whereas some people, one day they are happy, the next day... They're crying. Some people don't even wait to go from one day to the next. They're happy one minute and they cry the next. And then they're happy and then they're giddy and then they're, you know, and then they cry from joy and and then they're mad at somebody. You know, they're really like emotional yo-yos. So when you say good morning, you're not quite sure who you're saying good morning to. Because you don't know what mood they're going to be in. Yeah, do you know people like that? Are you one of those people? 
I had one Dharma friend who it was so nice. I kind of knew every morning when I said hello who I was talking to because she was quite steady. And then after some years, she, she did a complete turnaround that shocked me. But, you know, we should try and be steady. Okay. Although, of course, you know, different things happen in our life. We're in a good mood, and then we get one phone call, and it turns everything topsy-turvy. Okay. So to be able to, you know, instead of staying in topsy-turvy mode, say, okay, you know, We'll deal with that. It's not the end of the world. Let's come back and, you know, try and be steady here instead of being so emotionally reactive, you know. I mean, try building a Buddha hall and remaining steady, okay? You think, oh, well, you just hire a contractor and he does everything. Well, you know, you you hire the engineer, and he he has to talk to you about gazillions of things, and then you finally settle on it. He designs something, and then it gets turned over to the health department, and the health department says, no, we aren't accepting this. And then you go, ah, but we spent so much money on the engineer, and we thought he knew what he was doing. And why didn't he confer with the health department earlier? Because that's not how it's done. You design it, and then the health department tells you how to change it. <laughs> you know? So it's so easy just to, to you know, any small thing, we go, ah, Okay, so trying to remain steady. Now, when when you trip, when there's you know obstacles in your way, yeah. To be respectful. Okay, to respect other people, to respect ourselves, to you know when when people do things that you think are foolish. Recognize that they're under the control of afflictions and don't just think, you know, well, that person is a jerk. That's really easy, you know. Sometimes when you read the news, I won't talk too much about some of the things that, but you read something and so and so said this and you're going, this guy is crazy. You know, what are they doing? And, you know, what a jerk. Who elected him? And, and all your respect for one human being, you know, or for a group of human beings, goes out the window. You know, and all we see in neon flashing light is jerk, jerk, jerk. And how do we respond to it? Don't respect, criticize, blame. Okay, so Shanti is telling us to be respectful. Yeah, even with people we think are jerks. Because sometimes jerks can have, have a good idea. You know, and sometimes jerks are right. 
we may not like them as a person, yeah, but they may sometimes have a good idea. You look skeptical. <laughs> it's okay, you can be skeptical. Yeah, but to try and, and be respectful. Yeah, and polite. Polite's the next one. I think, personally, that many of the hurt feelings and conflicts in the world come because people don't use basic manners and are not polite to each other. Yeah. And, you know, as a kid growing up, I thought manners were so stupid. You know, you got to call somebody like this and you've got to say please and you've got to say thank you and you know you can do this and that you know you, that that's what you need to do to be a good girl okay but i really see now as an adult that when people are impolite it starts everything off on a bad foot yeah whereas just being using regular human manners, yeah, that our parents taught us. It really helps. And I think that especially with the people that we know very well, because those people were so familiar with them, or people you live with, that it's very easy to think, I don't need to be polite with these people. Yeah, I don't need to say please and thank you. I can just say, do this. <laughs> yeah, because we know each other so well and we've already established we love each other. So now that we know we love each other, I can treat them, you know, impolitely, disrespectfully, and uh, it's not going to have a bad effect. Mm, no, don't work like that. Okay? So I think... You know, manners are, are quite important. You can see this sometimes in couples, how they needle each other in, in public, or they ridicule each other, you know, in front of other people, or point out, you know, each other's bad thing and qualities. And that's not so good. You know, it, it, it makes the other person looks, look bad. It makes you look like a jerk. Yeah. It, it's so impolite. So to, to really try and, and, you know, be respectful and be polite, you know, there may be cer certain circumstances where it's, you know, I, I remember one situation where I saw uh, one spiritual mentor training a disciple and he humiliated that disciple in front of a group of people. But you could see it was to, to train that person and that person passed with flying colors. Yeah. He didn't go, how, how come the master's talking to me like that? Oh, I worked so hard and he didn't appreciate me. I'm out of here. Boom. You know, he just stood there and took it. Yeah. And you could tell what kind of practitioner he was. So, you know, there are those situations, but then there are other situations, you know, where normally we want to, to be polite. 
Okay, with a sense of integrity, and I should say consideration for others. So a, a sense of, you know, I'm a Dharma practitioner and I have certain values and principles that I want to uphold and these are important to me. I want to live by them. So I, I need to hold these close to my heart and act in relation to them. Yeah. Yeah. I was speaking with a, a, a young monastic from a different monastery and he, he was telling me, you know, that he has some strong value that that particular monastery uh, doesn't have. It's not that the monastery has a bad value, they just don't have the particular thing that, that he wanted to emphasize. Um, but he was still very respectful of that, you know, his own monastery. And But he had a sense of his own integrity, and he said, I need to practice in this way, uh, you know, because this is something I believe in, even though the other people they're virtuous, but they don't do they don't do this pra- practice in this way. Okay, when it says apprehensive here, it doesn't mean you panic and you know, uh oh, did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? Are they going to criticize me? Are they going to like me? You know, I think apprehensive here means, you know, just to ask ourselves, am I? acting according to what I believe in. Yeah? And peaceful. Yeah? To to do things in a peaceful way. Yeah? Without getting flustered. Without getting panicked. Without feeling like, you know, the world, the sky is going to fall if I don't correct this mistake right now. Yeah? But just learning to be peaceful... And learning, um, you know, it comes in another verse, but, but, you know, people will make mistakes, but, you know, instead of reacting with, with so strongly to their mistakes with disapproval and blame and name calling, you know, just remain peaceful and know they're under the influence of afflictions and, you know, uh, you stay steady and you hold your ground, um, but you don't need to get all disjointed because of, you know, them doing what they're doing. I've been reading uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's book, My Own Words, and it's very interesting. I didn't know much about the Supreme Court, so I'm learning about that, but also about her philosophy about handling certain things. And it relates a lot to monastic life, you know, different things you do and don't do. And one of the things is uh, the Supreme Court, as we know, uh, you know, goes by majority rule. And sometimes the majority may make a decision that uh, other people on the court don't think is a correct decision. They think it's wrong. So... One of the things I, I learned from her is uh, you can dissent, but you know you don't write a, a dissent and read it from the bench every single time you disagree, because if you do that, then 
It's like the, the boy who called wolf. Everybody stops listening to you after a while because, oh yeah, here's somebody who always dissents. They always find something that's wrong and they're always saying that. Okay. So she was saying f to, you know, very often hold your dissent. And she was citing some justices who did that. And then when it was a really important issue where they didn't agree with the court decision, then when they wrote a dissent and spoke it, it had a strong impact and people woke up, you know. And sometimes if uh, they read the dissent before they announced the decision, the majority uh, actually changed the decision to what the dissent was, okay? So, you know, it really made me think of how we live together in a monastic environment and we try and do things by consensus. And if every time we didn't agree with every small decision, we dissented and stopped everything and made a big deal about it, after a while, our dissent is not going to have very much meaning. Yeah. Uh, but if you kind of go along with it and, and, you know, okay, people are doing this. I might be wrong, but it's not a whole big deal. We'll try it out their way and see where it goes and modify it if we need to. Uh, you know, if you have that idea and don't just, you know, interrupt the, the process of, of, um, you know, being in harmony, then when there's a thing that's really big that you think we really need to be careful about, then when you speak up, people will listen. Okay. So that, that was one thing. Um, yeah. And about, uh, you know, so being peaceful and just sometimes going along with the majority, yeah, when you think it's not such a bad decision because it is helpful for the court and it's helpful for the public if the Supreme Court can be in harmony. Whereas if all major decisions are 5-4, a 5-4 split, after a while, the public is not going to trust the Supreme Court so much. The decisions, they're going to think, oh, you know, half here, half there. Uh, is this really a good decision if only, you know, it's a matter of one person? Okay. So, um, yeah, so what was she saying regarding that? Mm hmm Yeah, so she was just, you know, emphasizing trying to, trying to aim for unification. Oh, here it is. When she did dissent, yeah, it was something important. And her dissent, what she wrote, she was appealing to the intelligence of future justices. Okay, so I found this quite interesting when she found a, a court, you know, one of the decisions really not very good, 
And uh, But she knew that the people who had decided the majority were not going to budge for it. But she felt very strongly that it was a, a bad decision. Then she would write her dissent, but she was speaking to the wisdom of people who would come in the future who could look back at that case as sometimes happens in the Supreme Court, fortunately. And those people will know this was a horrible decision and they will change it. So we have some Supreme Court cases like the Dred Scott case. Yeah, that horrible decision. Uh, he was a slave. They took his, uh, the family took him to uh, this was in the mid-19th century. Uh, they took him to uh, one of the outlying areas where slavery was not permitted. He uh, said, I should be a free person. Yeah. And he, I think, you know, because he said we're in a place where slavery is outlawed and you don't have any claim over me as, as being a slave. Uh, and then they took him back from there back into where a slave state and he sued he, and it went to the Supreme Court. And, you know, these, some of the justices have said, well, yeah, he was a slave and he's not a citizen. The slaves are not citizens. So he has no right even to petition the court for his freedom because he's not a citizen of the country. You know, I mean, it was a horrible decision that just supported slavery and, and said, you know, they aren't citizens. Yeah. And, um, and Ruth Ginsburg, <laughs> Bader Ginsburg said, that's a horrible decision, you know. Yeah. They're, they're, they're citizens and we, they have a right to petition. And he was in an area where slavery was outlawed and he deserves his freedom. You know, I mean, she, she wasn't alive at the time they wrote, wrote that. But some other justices later, you know, did, well, at that time dissented from that. And then later that uh, ruling was overturned by a future court. Yeah. So sometimes I'm giving the Supreme Court example, but what the point I'm getting at is sometimes the situation is such that we think there's a very bad decision, but we can't get the majority of people to move. You can still make your dissent known, but you, in your mind, you are aware that you're addressing the intelligence of people who will come later. So in that way, you remain respectful, you express your dissent, but you don't get mad at the people who are in the majority right now and create a lot of ruckus. Now, is that making some sense? Yeah? Okay. So that's in the, you know, the, uh, uh, if you're a Supreme Court justice, how you deal with the situation. Obviously, you know, we have a lot of protests in this country. Why? Because often, People think that the court decisions or the laws are a bad idea. 
So that's another situation where, you know, whole groups of people express their dissent. And that's something that our Constitution permits, and we can do that. But again, you know, if we express our dissent in a protest, the, the calmer we are, the more people will listen, you know, and we see that if people get violent, then other people just tune them out and you lose the force of, uh, of what you're trying to convey. Yeah. Okay. And then the last sentence in this verse, okay, I should strive to make others happy. So this does not translate to, I strive to be a people pleaser. Okay, that's not the, what this ver that line means. It means that when we're living together with others and there's things that we can do to make others happy that don't transgress our precepts, that don't put others in, in awkward situations, when we're making something good happen that will benefit somebody, then we should do that. So make others happy doesn't mean you just try, you know, you make an alcoholic happy by buying him, you know, an extra, uh, you know, bottle of Jack Daniels or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, make others happy means you know, see if the situation is something beneficial. Be agreeable uh, with other people. Uh, yeah. And this, again, is something that so often causes major fights in families. Okay. For example, the family decides we want to go out for dinner. This was in pre-COVID days. Or in COVID days, I want we want to order food to take out. Okay. Then one person in the family, I want Mexican. No, I want Japanese. No, I want uh, German. No, I want to go to the deli. No, I want Chinese. No, I want Thai. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. And then there's a whole big argument about, well, no, you know, we had sushi last time, so I want refried beans this time. You know, you already had your choice, and, you know, now I want my choice. And Yeah, did do you remember this from when you lived with your family? These kinds of things? No? Yeah, that you hope your family always went out for Chinese food. <laughs> yeah, there's the that's the only option. They don't have Mexican restaurants in, in Singapore, you know. So, yeah, that's it. Um, okay, but, you know, how many quarrels start because of something like that? Whereas if you just say, okay, you want to go here, you feel like eating that, that's fine. Oh, then it's so easy. Yeah. But sometimes I wonder in families if people really like having that kind of, that's how they communicate, you know, is to discuss. Uh, and that sometimes it can get very heated. 
you know, some family discussions about what to order at a restaurant. It's just a discussion. It's not heated, but some are like, yeah, get me out of here. <laughs> My family, it doesn't get heated, but they will spend a half an hour talking about what to order. Yeah. And so, you know, here's their daughter who's lived in community for how many years, who just eats what's there, who doesn't know how to make a decision, you know, about what she feels like eating. And, and they take a half an hour to order, you know. But that makes them happy. So, yeah, so, okay, whatever you want to get is okay, just so long as it's vegetarian. <laughs> okay. Verse uh, 56, I should not be disheartened by all the whims of the childish who are in discord with one another. I should know these to arise in their minds due to disturbing conceptions and therefore be kind towards them. So this was the verse I was referring to a minute ago. Okay. When you see all the whims of the childish who are in discord with each other. Yeah. Oh, no, I think we should have a commission to investigate. Uh, January says, no, we shouldn't have a commission to do it. Uh, yes, we should, and it'll have half, you know, it's bipartisan, half-half. No, we wanted more our side. We Anyway, we don't really want a commission. Uh, well, we'll do it without you, and then you'll really be screwed. Well, we just don't listen to you, <laughs> you know. So you shouldn't be disheartened by these people, <laughs> okay? It's the whims of the childish who are in discord with each other, people who have no idea of that they're in samsara and that they are creating the causes for their own future lives with what they think, say, and do in this life. You know, they don't have that perspective at all. Their perspective is, how can I get ahead? What will benefit my political power? You know, and that's the... the. Uh, what did you say, the criteria by which they make decisions. Yeah. And, you know, at some level, we shouldn't, you know, they're going to be like this. We're not going to change them. I mean, I still have the dream of being able to, to address Congress um, someday. Uh, but, of course, uh, I think the only one who will show up might be Bernie. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I think half of, you know, most of the Congress probably wouldn't come. But anyway, you can dream. And, um, you know, not be disheartened by the whims of the childish 
who are in discord with each other. This is just, this is what the way samsara is, okay? Um, and instead, to know that, you know, they're going through all this stuff that we look at as like, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're making problems for yourself now. You're creating a negative karma that's going to send you to horrible reverse in the future. You know, that's how we look at it. But, but to understand they're acting that way because of their afflictions. It's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're awful people. They're afflicted people. And we're also afflicted people. And we know what it's like to be overwhelmed by your afflictions. And that's what we're dealing with right now. And so to um, be kind towards them, but to also be resolute, yeah, be firm, express our opinion, but uh, know that those people have the Buddha nature and they can change. Yeah. Okay, so to have a kind attitude towards them, even though we may oppose them in discussions. Okay. Verse 57. In doing that which by nature is not unwholesome, in other words, by acting in a virtuous way, both for the sake of myself and other sentient beings, I should always hold my mind fast, acting like an apparition with no sense of self. Okay, so always doing what by nature is not unwholesome, in other words, something that is either neutral or something that is wholesome or virtuous. And, and it's wholesome or virtuous or beneficial for myself and for others. Okay, so I take other people into consideration when I make decisions. So sometimes I value their happiness of this life, but usually I try and think about what is going to benefit them the most in the long term, not just in the next five minutes, but in the long term of this life or in the long term of samsara. Okay? And so, so with that kind of clarity, then hold our mind fast. In other words, you know, have that clarity, be steady, be resolute, and, and don't be, you know, wibbly-wobbly. And then when we act, act like an apparition with no sense of self. Okay? So we hear apparition and we think ghost. I'm supposed to act like a ghost. You know? No, just think, think of... Um, you know, we've watched enough cartoons where there's been apparitions in cartoons <laughs> and where a cartoon itself is an apparition. Or, you know, when you ride on Disneyland in the haunted house, I don't know what this was, what it was many years ago. I don't know what it's like now. 
But, you know, many years ago, when you came out of the haunted house, you know, you came out in, in your carriage and you were looking at a mirror and there's you and your friend and an apparition, a smiling ghost sitting next to you. Okay. So that, you know, that hologram has no sense of self. Yeah, it's just an appearance. That hologram isn't saying, look at me, here I am, uh, you know. Uh, it, it's just there. So the same way, when we act in the world, to not have a, a strong ego in it. Here when it says sense of self, it doesn't mean, uh, it's not saying don't have self-confidence. That's not what it's saying. It's saying don't have a big ego in the thing where you want glory and you want everybody to see that you're right and they're wrong and you want to win the argument and so on. But to act in the world without a big sense of self. Like, here I am and I'm going to direct the whole thing because you guys don't know what you're doing. Um, you know, when we haven't been invited to do that. Okay. Or getting very bossy. Yeah. Anybody here get bossy? Yeah. Oh, you're all, who gets bossy besides other people? Oh, okay. Really? Can we tell you that you're being bossy when you're being bossy? No, we, we can't tell you. Mm, okay. That's going to create some problem. <laughs> okay, verse 58. By thinking again and again that after a long time I have won the great fortune, you know, um, or the great freedom, actually, or freedom and fortune of a precious human life, likewise, I should hold my mind as utterly unshakable like the king of mountains or monarch of mountains, or queen of mountains. Okay. So, by thinking again and again, so, you know, practicing repetition, you know, really inculcating this uh, into our mind, imprinting it in our mind, um, the, the understanding that we have an incredible opportunity to practice the Dharma, because we have the eight freedoms and ten fortunes of a precious human life. And so having that opportunity, let's not fritter it away, getting involved in things that don't really matter, you know, that are just, you know, picky, small things that we like to complain about. Yeah. So let's not waste our time over that kind of stuff, but instead hold our mind utterly unshakable in the Dharma. So hold our mind to virtuous aspirations, to virtuous objects, Yeah, to monitor the mind and as much as possible keep it in that state because that's the best way to make use of our precious human life. 
Because yeah. as we've talked so many times, we've seen that even one moment of lack of clarity, one moment where we lack mindfulness and introspective award, awareness, we could do something really stupid that totally shatters our freedom and fortune in this life and uh, and creates the karma for horrible rebirths. Yeah. So we have to be, you know, hold our mind very steady and, uh, you know, not be impulsive and, and not just we react too quickly to things. Yeah, we can see in some of the situations um, that are happening uh, with police contact, conduct, you know, that the police officers that remain calm and they're polite and they, you know, they think before they speak, they will have good interactions on traffic stops and on other things that they're doing. The officers who just drive up, pull out their gun, and start shooting immediately without checking out who's doing what, you know, there they run into, you know, they run into problems and other people get hurt. Yeah. I was watching where two friends, one was black and one was right, they were talking about their, uh, when they'd been talk, stopped by the police. Okay, they were both young people. They both looked like late 20s, early 30s, something. So um, the black man was saying that he got pulled over and uh, the cop pulled out the gun when she got up out of the car and had it ready as she was walking towards his window. And then said, are you so-and-so? And he said, yes. And she said, we have a warrant out for you. And he said, uh, sorry, I don't know anything about that. And she said, look, there's a warrant out. I'm going to arrest you. And she's holding the gun. So he, you know, he had had that, his hands on the steering wheel when she came. And she, he pointed out, I have my hands on my steering wheel, you know. And so he just got out of the car, she handcuffed him, took him back, you know. Uh, when they got to, uh, I don't know if they got to the station or if she uh, called the station, you know, to check. As it wound up, somebody else had used his name when they committed a crime. And so the warrant was not for him. Now, if he had resisted arrest, he would have been killed. You know, I mean, she had the gun right there. Fortunately, he was calm. He was respectful. She apologized at the end. I'm very sorry for this. Yeah. But he, he was telling his white friend how, you know, when he was getting pulled over, he wasn't just thinking, oh, is my car insurance going to go up because I was speeding? He was thinking, am I going to die? 
you know. Then his white friend, yeah, started, talked about when she got pulled over on a traffic stop. And the cop came out of the car, again, not holding a weapon, came to her window. She got uh, so flustered by being, you know, pulled over that she was shaking, she was crying, she was like this. The cop said, it's okay, I'll give you a minute to calm down. And the cop walked back to their, to the police car, sat in it for a few minutes, you know, trusted her enough that she wasn't going to drive away, and she didn't. And, uh, and then the cop went back up and, you know, and said, you were doing whatever it was. Okay. And it was, a, yeah. And just the difference between how a, a black person and white person gets treated on a traffic stop. Yeah. So, you know, what we're getting here is, to to think about situations, suss situations out so that we don't act with partiality, so that we don't make judgments about people without checking out what's actually happening. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, being mindful, having introspective awareness, doing what we need to do in a respectful, polite way. Yeah. Okay. Um, so vi- verse 59. Now he's going to shift into uh, a, a whole other set of, of verses talking about how to relate to our body. Because attachment to our body is one of the big motivating factors for us in what we do. You know, we are attached to the happiness of the body, so we do actions to try and please the body, you know, and make it comfortable and get what we like and get what we want. Um, When our body is uncomfortable or when people interfere with us getting the happiness we want from this body, then anger arises. Yeah, we get aggressive, we get defensive, you know, because we're attached to the happiness of this body. So Shantideva here is saying, look at what this body is and check up. Yeah, it's the Lama Yeshi's expression. He always used to say, check up, dear. You know, check up if your attachment to the body is something reasonable. Is it warranted? Okay. So he says, so here's Shantideva talking to his own mind. If, mind, you are not made unhappy when this body is dragged and tossed about by vultures greedy for flesh, then why are you so concerned about it now? Okay, so in Shantideva's day, when you died, you know, your body was put out in the charnel ground, and the vultures ate it, or the, the foxes and the other wild animals came and gnawed the bones, and, you know, you made, 
whether you wanted to or not, you made charity of your dead body, and it, it was nourishing other living beings. So here, you know, some people are so attached to their body that they're worried what other people will do with their corpse. And you can see in general in society, people take very good care of corpses. You know, if you're uh, in a battlefield, yeah, and your friend gets, gets killed, you are responsible for bringing his dead body back because the family wants the body. Okay. And, and so, uh, and then the whole thing of, uh, I guess it's part of international law, uh, war rules, you're not allowed to desecrate or disrespect the bodies. So remember when some soldiers in, how do you say the name of the, the prison in Iraq, Abu, Abu Ghraiba, yeah, okay, where the soldiers were, you know, taking photographs with dead bodies or, you know, in some battles, different people pee on the bodies or whatever. So, um, you know, but people are very attached to what's going to happen to their body, even though they're not, you know, when you die and you left this body, you have no relationship with it. Yeah. You have no relationship. You, people can kick it. They can do what they want. You don't feel any pain. But attachment to the body, not, you know, thinking that body is me and it needs to be respected, then uh, if people get very upset. If their body, you know, if they think somebody's going to disrespect their body or if they disrespect a body of their loved one, okay? So, but in actual fact, once we're dead, our body can be dragged and tossed around by the vultures. They all come there and they're all, you know, they say, Omahum, Omahum, <laughs> first, and then they go for it. And, uh, you know, the vultures are having a feast. They're enjoying it. We're already in the bardo, maybe even already in another life. Yeah. Do Are we going to care about whether our body is dragged and tossed about and munched on by vultures when we're in the bardo or when we're in another life? Yeah. Can you remember your previous life body and what happened to it, to the corpse of your previous life? Do you care now what happened to your previous life corpse? No. So it's going to be that way, like that way when we die and we leave this thing. Yeah. So that's why he's saying, you know, if you're not made unhappy when your body is, you know, gobbled up by the, the vultures or, you know, people pee on it or they take pictures with it or they, uh, you know, paint faces. I don't know, you know, what people do. But, um, 
if you don't care about your body then because you're it's previous life body, you have no relationship. Then Shanti Deva says, Why are you so concerned about your body now? If you don't care about it then, why are you so preoccupied with it now? It's the same body, it's the same blood and guts. So why, you know, are we so persnickety about, I've got to make my body comfortable. I've got to make my body look good. Oh no, I'm aging. I better dye my hair. I better get Botox. Get rid of these wrinkles right here, you know. I better, uh, you know, go to the gym. Uh, I, I've got to move my mattress, you know. I've got to, um, you know, I, this chair's too hard. The chair's too soft. Um, you know, I need the, my goodness, it's too cold in this building. Why don't you turn on the air con? It's too hot in here. You know, why do we have to go with one sleeve bared and the other one covered? when you're shivering on this side and it's falling off on this side and you're too hot. Why can't we just put our robe around both sides, both shoulders? The Theravadas do that. Why can't we, you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, yeah. Yeah? So we have lots of opinions and lots of wants and lots of likes and not dis lots of dislikes. But what is this thing? Yeah. <laughs> Once we get to chapter uh, eight, he'll go into more description about what this thing is. Yeah. I mean, it's just a sack of garbage, basically. And yet, we want it to be comfortable, and we want it to look good. Okay, we want it to look good. So I'll grow my hair out a little bit because I'll wait a long time to shave it because I look better when my hair is is a little bit longer. Yeah, like like that long. Um, or uh. You know, my robes are old and dirty. I should get new robes when I ordain. Why are you telling me I, that the tradition is that I should get used robes? So-and-so got new robes. How come I can't? Yeah. Or, um, yeah, as, you know, I'm just trying, trying to look good. Yeah. So, yeah. Can't I use a little bit of blush here and there? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's for the community photograph. And you want us all to look good when we have a community photograph. Yeah, so a little bit of blush. Yeah. Put some, some uh, mascara on. Yeah. Oh, no. Nobody uses mascara. They all have long eyelashes now. So let's all get long eyelashes. <laughs> But my eyelash will go like that. So it's like, oops, I put on my, my long eyelash. It's the wrong direction. <laughs> will you put it on, you know? 
I want to look like the people in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, why do we care about how this body looks if before too long it's just going to be a corpse and the vultures are going to have it for lunch? Well, because if I don't look good, my mother's going to freak out. Yeah, but you're a nun. But I have to look good as a nun, otherwise my mother will freak out. Did your parents comment on what your clothes when you went when you went back? No. Huh? Yesterday I was talking to my niece and I was wearing my hat and she said, take off your hat. And she was like, that is so cool. So <laughs> <laughs> She's nine years old. <laughs> okay. Yeah. My, my nieces said when, the, you know, when they were like seven, eight, nine, why do you wear the same clothes every day? You know, look at the uh, the socialization by that age of how you dress. Okay, verse 60, holding this body as mine. Why, mind, do you guard it so? Since you and it are separate, what use can it be to you? So here he's challenging the whole concept of mine. This is my body. And as we know, as soon as we say my to something, our relationship with that object changes radically. Okay. I lost my Zen in the laundry. Yeah. I need my blanket. <laughs> I keep thinking of my my little sister when she was a baby. You know, she had her blankie like that. You know, so I want my blanket. I want my shoes. Yeah. I loan this book to you, but the book is mine. Yeah. And this money is mine. So I'll loan it to you, but you better pay it back. Okay. So, so a mat, you know, if it's that way towards external things, this body, you know, because we're with the body all the time. We're not with our book and our blankie all the time. But, you know, this body is mine. So I've got to protect it and I've got to make it happy and I've got to make it look good. <laughs> And everything. So he's not saying here, neglect your body. We're coming to a verse, we may not get to it today, where he talks about, you know, you got to keep your body healthy to practice the Dharma. He's not talking about, you know, mistreating your body, but he's saying, why do we hold it as mine when actually? You know, he's talking to the mind. Why do you guard it so, mind, when body is different from you? 
Body and mind are different. The continuum of the mind is going on to the next life. The body is getting recycled. Okay. Hannibal Jampa is going to take it to the recycle place. <laughs> yeah, because we're ecologically uh, competent in the monastery, aren't we? And there, there's some, actually, there's, uh, uh, you found a, a thing about it, I, we didn't show it to you yet, of people who make mushroom uh, coffins, and you put the body in it, and the body biodegrades, you know, and then you can use it for the garden. Yeah, you have some more fertilizer. Um, yeah. So that's great. You know, if you want to use my body for, to fertilize the garden, I don't care. You know, I'd rather the, the, the birds ate it. You know, that's making more direct charity. But, you know, if they don't want it, it doesn't meet their taste. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know. But he, he's saying, you know, why mind you guard this body so much? Yeah, what use is it really to you? Yeah. So like I said, he's not saying, you know, just mistreat the body. But really, at, you know, watching what your relationship to your body is. And why do I act that way? You know, and have those, those needs and wants and demands that concern my body. Yeah, what is, why do I get angry when my body is uncomfortable? Yeah, because when are we ever gonna have a comfortable body? Okay, so I will leave you with that today. So just, you know, notice your homework. Notice how you relate to your body. And it's like, oh, it hurts here. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Or or yeah, just just be aware how you relate to your body and what you think about your body and what you do to make your body look good. Mm. or how, you know, you're a nun now, you can't make your body look so good, but what do you do, even though you can't do the things you used to do to make it look good, what can you do as a nun to make your body look good, you know? Well, my glasses, I want to have attractive glasses, yeah? I don't want to have plastic glasses that are purple on the outside, you know, purple rims. Yeah. Or where part of it is purple and part of it is green, but they're plastic glasses, you know? I mean, glasses I'm allowed to wear, but I want attractive glasses. Yeah. Okay, anyway, just... Do a little bit of research. <laughs> <laughs>